Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version. I am your host, Maria Leonard Olson. I am a civil litigation attorney in Washington, D.C., a mentor to women in recovery, a podcaster, TEDx speaker, journalist, and author. My latest book is 50 After 50, Reframing the Next Chapter of Your Life, which is available anywhere you get your books. I've also done a TEDx talk on this subject about getting unstuck and up-leveling your life, and I've been gratified to help hundreds of people, thousands actually, change their lives for the better, especially in midlife, but not only in midlife. You can find that book on my website, marialeonardolson.com, or anywhere you get your books, even libraries, because Library Journal gave it a very positive review. I started this podcast, Becoming Your Best Version, three years ago, because I came across so many inspiring women, and I would love for you to learn about them too. So I dedicate this podcast to women who have inspired me, whose paths have crossed mine, and who can uplift you as well. Today in the studio, we have Catherine Abdul-Baki, who was born in Washington, D.C., to an Arab father and an American mother. She grew up in Iran, Kuwait, Beirut, and Jerusalem, where she attended Arabic, British, and American schools. She attended the American University of Beirut, Beirut Lebanon, has a BA in journalism from, from George Washington University in DC, and in a master's degree in creative writing from George Mason University. As an astute observer of two distinct cultures, she has published five works of fiction, some of which have been taught at universities in multicultural literature, women's studies, and Arab studies departments. Catherine worked as a journalist and features writer for an English weekly newspaper in Bahrain before devoting her time to writing fiction. Her published works include a collection of short stories, and four novels. You can read about which novels and collections she has to her name on the show notes, so you do not need to write this down. She won the Mary Roberts Reinhardt Award for Short Fiction, and her novel called Sands of Zuleika was a finalist for the Ariadne Prize. She also has published in journals such as Confrontation, Shenandoah Review, Phoebe, Union Street Review, and World Vision. Her books are taught at universities in multicultural literature and Arab studies departments, and she is a frequent lecturer at universities and schools on these subjects. Universities where she has lectured include Georgetown University, University of Virginia, one of my alma maters, New York University, and others. Catherine released in September a new memoir that reflects on love, loss, renewal, and overcoming devastating early trauma through music, dancing, and the devotion of a strong American, of the strong American and Arab women in her life, called Dancing into the Light, an Arab American girlhood in the Middle East. Dancing into the Light. I love that image. Catherine's new book weaves together stories about her bicultural upbringing with an American mother and a Muslim father from Jerusalem. Her family moved from Washington, D.C. to the Middle East when she was very young. 
Set against the backdrop of the early American presence in Iran under the Shah and the burgeoning years of Kuwait's early oil boom, Dancing into the Light is Catherine's memoir of a life disrupted by tragedy. But instead of derailing her life, her mother's death opened the door to deeper love and support from other places within, within her family. She frequently speaks on growing up immersed in disparate cultures, navigating cultural mores and values of two different societies, very different societies. How people of diametrically different cultures and faiths can coexist in harmony when there is tolerance and respect. Dispelling stereotypes of Arab women and misconceptions about Middle Eastern cultures. Life as a bicultural person in the Middle East. Catherine's mother was a Southern woman from Tennessee, and her father was a Muslim from Jerusalem. How she has seen Kuwait, Jerusalem, and other parts of the Middle East change politically, socially, and historically over her lifetime. Experiences with grief at an early age, and how she finds found solace following the deaths of her mother and younger brother. Overcoming devastating early trauma through music and dancing. Ms. Magazine said of Catherine's work, her politics are feminist, her theme is human ethics, and her writing is finely honed. Catherine has three children and resides in with her husband in McLean, Virginia. She loves to teach dance, including the Argentine tango and performs in the Washington DC area. You can find out more about her at katherineabdulbaki.com. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, Maria. This is a real privilege and I'm honored to be here this morning. Well, there's so much to talk about. I mean, there are very, well, uh, let's start with your father. I mean, how interesting to grow up Muslim in Jerusalem. Is he, is he okay? <laughs> I mean, what did he survive unscathed? I mean, how difficult that must have been. Well, um, yes, he left Jerusalem when he was 17, came to okay. this country to study. Okay. Um, prior to that, of course, he did grow up in Jerusalem. At the time, it was during the British Mandate, okay. which was in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, he's passed on now a few years ago, but uh, he grew up during the British Mandate. And then when he left to come here to study, then the state of Israel was created. So he suddenly became like a refugee. His passport, Palestinian passport under the British mandate was no longer valid. So uh, life changed for him in Jerusalem in that sense. But then he stayed here after he studied for a number of years, married my mother. Um, that's wow. his early story, his early story. Yes, and... Your mother was a Southern Belle from Tennessee. I mean, how how did they meet? <laughs> well, it's funny because my mother was indeed from Old Hickory, right outside of Nashville. And she'd gone to Vanderbilt and then gone to Northwestern, wanting to be a writer. Um, she grew she was tired of Vanderbilt, moved on to Northwestern to see a different, you know, larger community. And then after one year there, she decided she was bored and she was going to take a year off and go to Washington, DC to just experience, you know, working and just taking a year off. This was in the, probably around 1950. Um, when she was there, she and her girlfriend uh, got jobs, I think at the Pentagon at the time, typists or whatever else they were 
able to do then. And one night she walked into a Middle Eastern deli near her home, uh, her apartment, and to buy some cigarettes and some groceries. And at the cashier, my father was working part-time while he was going for his master's uh, in business. Uh, she so took one look at him, at his dark, exotic looks. She was a redhead. You know, mm -hmm. and that's for me. And somehow they got to talking and got to going out together. That's how they met in the oh, deli. Oh, wow. What luck. What luck. Gosh. I, I love stories about how people met. I used to write for Bethesda Magazine, and I wrote a whole story oh. about unusual ways people met, and I love it. So then you now live in the Washington, D.C. area. So do you, um, did you try to teach your children about both Muslim faith and Christianity, or how did you navigate that? Well, um, I never was big on teaching faith. Um, I just, I sort of naturally growing up in the Middle East, the schools are, they taught, they teach faith. And I went to Christian schools, I went to Muslim schools. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of that. Um, with my own children, I did try and teach them, uh, send them to schools to learn Arabic and had tutors for them to learn the language. And of course, right. they got a little bit of the Islamic culture injected, which we're sort of Muslim by birth, since my dad's a Muslim and Arab community, you are what your father is. It's a patriarchal community. So, but um, I'm more into the cultural aspects of the Middle East than any particular religion. Um, the three religions always sort of get along there. You know, there's the Jewish, the Christian, the Muslim religion. So religion isn't a big thing in our household, but uh, the cultures, uh, it was much more interesting for me. And so they grew up knowing that they're Arab and American. My husband's Arab. So they have both of that. But of course, they've been educated here. So uh, they have also the and they've been born here. So they have the American culture deeply inside them. But they know that they're also Arab. Well, I applaud you teaching them uh, Arabic because my mother was an immigrant, but she didn't teach me her language. And, and I feel like that's such a gift that parents can give to their children. So you grew up in two very different cultures. How was that for you? Well, it was fascinating because all I knew was I thought of myself as American. My mother was American. My father, you know, was an American citizen. And, um, when I first started out in Iran, he was working for the Department of Defense, setting up an English language school for the Iranian military. Mm. So we expatriate life, basically, of American expats in Iran. Our friends were Iranians and Americans. And uh, for we lived there two years. After that, we moved to Kuwait, where he worked for an oil company for 10 years. And that's mainly where I grew up. Um, yes, deeply immersed in the Arab culture there and also in an American culture because we were part of an American expat community. That was the company my father worked for was an American oil company. So they had a special compound out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere in those days and uh, very encapsulated. Uh, we It was wonderful, but I knew I was American and Arab at the same time. 
My mother, who was determined for me to learn Arabic and knew she could never teach me because she did not speak Arabic herself, put me immediately into a little girl's school in a, uh, a girls' school in a little fishing village, ten minutes away from our compound. Wow! And yes, it was a that was my first experience of culture shock because I was six years old. I was the only non-speaking Arab girl, I, but then I didn't know Arabic. I was a bright red hair and freckles. <laughs> and everyone else was, you know, uh, we had a few Arabs from Syria and Lebanon, Palestine, but most of them were Kuwaiti girls. Uh, this was among the first generation, I would say, a couple of years older than me but um, started, but first generation of educated Kuwaiti women. So I quickly learned Arabic, had no choice. Um, and that's basically how I got an in into the Arab culture. I will be forever thankful from my, to my mother for forcing me to go to that little school, although I didn't like it in the beginning at all because I couldn't understand anyone. They couldn't understand me. But soon I learned Arabic and became one of them, even though I looked very different. Right, right. Wow. Wow, that yeah. must have been a fascinating upbringing. Yeah, you you also suffered some terrible grief at an early age. And how did you find solace following the death of your mother and your younger brother? That's horrible. It was really very sad. Uh, my brother died when I was nine. And a year later, <clears throat> my mother left um, for Kuwait for the United States for to be cured to be receiving cancer treatment, which she um, she never came back to Kuwait after that. We stayed in Kuwait, my father and I. Uh, you know, he they were getting over the death of their son, and then she had this cancer diagnosis. So she was she flew to Honolulu, where my grandparents, where her parents were living then. They had left Tennessee, retired in Honolulu. And she received cancer treatment there and eventually had to go to NIH in DC because in Bethesda, uh, where they were doing innovative research in cancer. And then she passed away at the age of 31. Oh my gosh. When I was 10, 11, I just turned 11. So um, yes, that was the grief. It was of course, double grief, my brother and my mother. But I had, <clears throat> excuse me, um, aside from my grandparents living in Honolulu, whom we visited once a year, very strong connection to, my father had uh, three sisters who became, you know, surrogate mothers to me. They lived in Jerusalem, but we visited them a lot. And one of them would come over and stay with us for months at a time. And I had a, a very uh, good Arabic um, village woman who was my caretaker also at home. A housekeeper and so I had a lot of females around me who were role models and nurturing me and so it was a very very difficult and sad time yes but I, I was not without support I had a lot of support good good wow well uh, that's probably why you've you've remained such a centered person and that you have found many outlets for expression so that you can process so many different things in your life. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. So um, you, 
you also have written extensively uh, it, both as part of collections and on your own. What, why, why do you write about what you write about? How do you find your inspiration for what you you do? Well, I, you know, having grown up in the Middle East until I was 19, when I got married and came to this country, really to live for the first time to the continental United States, mm -hmm. uh, all my upbringing had been uh, well, Arab and American, sort of American, but that became less so after my mother died, I, it became much more Arab. So I really felt like I was an Arab person mm -hmm. uh, coming to this country. It was odd, you know, I didn't, I felt at home in the Middle East, not so much here, even though I looked totally American, <laughs> but um, so I, when I started to write, I always wanted to be a writer. My mother had been a writer um, and I wanted to be a writer. And when I started to write fiction, after I uh, studied journalism, worked a little bit on a newspaper, and then decided fiction really was my calling, the characters that that bubbled up on my on the page were Arabs, and mainly Arab women, because that's mm. who I'd spent a lot of time with. Village women, uh, uh, not only village women, but women of all kinds, you know, middle-class Arab women. And so those were the characters. I was really afraid in the beginning because I write in English and I thought, how is an American audience going to relate to what I write about? But actually it seems they did. So um, that's why I write mainly about the Middle East in a sense. Uh, my early books, two or three were about lives of Middle Eastern women. Then I wrote a book about an American couple who travels to the Middle East. So they are both American, but there's a, also, a, my foot is still in the Middle East. I wrote about an American woman who fell in love with a Middle Easterner, a Bahraini archeologist and ends up with him, divorces her American husband, ends up with him. And my latest um, memoir is simply going over the life I lived in the Middle East when it was a very different kind of place than it is today or than what it has become today. What are, uh, for those who don't follow the Mideast crisis, what are the major differences you see? Well, when I was growing up, everything was peaceful for the most part. Um, you know, um, very little crime. I will say very, very little crime, especially in Kuwait, where I grew up, but all over the Middle East. My father remembers one man being shot in Jerusalem during his whole upbringing uh, until he was, you know, 17 and left. Um, so very low crime rate, um, very close uh, family life and friends. It's just a very warm culture. It, 1967 was the Israeli Arab-Israeli war. That changed a lot for my family because a lot of the younger generation decided to leave Jerusalem, go to other parts of the Middle East or the United States for work opportunities, education, etc. That disrupted a lot of people's lives. But even after that, uh, it was very peaceful. Um, the most I remember being in, you know, ten-year-olds when. Uh, the Iraqi dictator at the time, not Saddam Hussein, someone before him, uh, was going to invade Kuwait. And then Abdel Karim Qasim, uh, 
And we were all talking about his possible invasion of Kuwait, which never happened. Uh, that, but, you know, the time was very different. The, uh, uh, it was just a very nice time to grow up, I will say, a very idyllic time. Yeah, well, it must be hard to see the changes. Do you um, have your children had the opportunity to travel to the Middle East very much? Oh, yes. When they were growing up, I took them every year. We would all oh. get on, you know, all three of them and myself and then my husband would join us and we'd go to mainly to Jordan where my family had moved after they left Beirut because of the civil war. And we'd go to Jerusalem. So they've been all over the Middle East and then they've traveled on the, their own uh, to the Middle East, to Damascus, to Jerusalem, to Cairo. You know, they've traveled a lot there. They, they still have this connection, very strong connection. Well, lucky children you have, very lucky. Hopefully you'll bring your grandchildren as well. That's the plan. <laughs> so how did you come up with the beautiful title, Dancing into the Light? Well, the, the working title of my book, interestingly enough, was Dancing to Harry Belafonte. <laughs> <laughs> nice. My father had been an aficionado of Harry Belafonte's and he danced, you know, to Harry Belafonte's tunes and to the Caribbean music and to Latin music. That was what I grew up with. Uh, when I was growing up, he played that on the stereo all the time. I danced with him and with their friends and, uh, you know, parties and things like that. So that brought me a lot of um, joy. So when I look at it, it, dancing is one of the things that, that helped me out of my grief. Um, our friends continue to come over to our house for parties and we would go to people's homes and dance. And the dancing was such an important and uplifting time for me. And with a father who danced, I mean, I grew up with a fabulous dance partner. He had studied some ballroom dancing. He wasn't a professional, of course, but so when I decided that um, my book really did not have anything other than a little bit about Harry Belafonte and it would have probably been too too complicated to get all the permission to use his name on the <laughs> <laughs> I then thought what did dancing do for me and it really brought me into the light it right. brought the light back into my life so that's where the title then changed to dancing into the light um, to move on beyond grief and sorrow and to face life with joy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that image of dancing into the light. So this is your first true memoir, yes? Yes. Of course, and, writing, yeah. well, as you, you might know, writing fiction, you're always putting yourself in there. So I have many characters in my book. Sometimes I'm the woman character, I'm the male character. But this was a straightforward memoir in terms of my life. And I just decided to write it chronologically, starting from when I first came into awareness in Tehran until I was about 12, a year after my mother died and my father um, was looking to remarry and did remarry when I was 12. That's when the book ends. Not because that was not a good thing, but that was the, the whole process. By then it was over 300 pages, so I really couldn't go on 
<laughs> well, maybe there will be a sequel then. There is one in the making, yes. Good, good. Okay. So was it hard for you to be to write memoir? For me, for example, I felt very exposed and at my first book talk, I felt a little self-conscious. It changed after that because I saw how it helped a lot of people. But how was it for you? Uh, well, writing this memoir, I will say I have been extremely, extremely, extremely fortunate in my life. I was never hurt or abused in any way, shape or form other than, you know, just little things here or there, but nothing really that would cause, cause me trauma. I was extremely well cared for by the women, by my dad, by my uncles. By... So when I wrote this book, it was mainly wanting to resurrect a time of growing up in the Middle East that no longer exists. Um, that was my main thing. So the only hard part, which was extremely hard, was when I came to write about my mother's death. And every time I came to that part, I would have to get up and walk away, come back a few hours later and try and resume it. And eventually by the, I don't know, 70th rewrite, I sort of was able to see it as, you know, more objectively. But that was the only really difficult um, uh, part I had, mainly because this is a memoir of growing up. It's not a children's book. It's an adult book, but it's mainly about a child's life. So... I really didn't have much I was exposing myself. Now I have done that in my fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in my mm -hmm. fiction, I have brought out things, but of course you're hiding behind a character. Right. Uh, yeah. But right. The, so I, I, there was nothing really to feel embarrassed about or anything. It wasn't like one of these, you know, you're ripping your soul open. Uh, I, it, it didn't demand that kind of courage. Let's put it that much that way. Yes, which is what mine was, <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. Well, I admire. I admire that. Maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's also, I imagine, a beautiful thing for your children and grandchildren to have to have this family history forever. I uh, that was not my main objective but in hindsight that has been a real lovely thing that has come about so far only my uh one of my daughters has um is reading the book it just i just got my author copies a little while ago mm -hmm. and and she's she feels exactly what you said thank you for leaving this for us and for the children there are a couple of adult things in there that I don't know, you know, it's not really a child's book, but eventually they will grow into uh, enjoying it. But it does show where they came from, where their parents came from, their grandparents came from, their great-grandparents, people they will never meet in a way of life they will never encounter. Yes. For instance, when I was growing up, just a short aside, when I was growing up in the Middle East and in Kuwait, um, you know, the, the way people were living there, they don't live like that anymore. Mm -hmm. They were actually really poor girls I was going to school with. Um, you know, we had lice in our hair. We had, um, you know, girls, Some a couple of girls were taken out of school and married at the age of 12 or 13. I mean, these things don't happen anymore in Kuwait. You know, there's mm -hmm. plenty of, everyone's been educated. Kuwait has really gone in just a couple of decades from going from a semi-nomadic 
uh, culture into a modern, uh, very modern high tech culture, of course, due to the oil money and just a, a really good, um, a really good, uh, on the part of the government, they just decided yes. everyone was going to be educated, free education, everybody. We were given, you know, we were given shoes, uniforms, we were given everything in school. Nobody had to pay a penny, just go to school hmm. and, you know, free medical care, free, uh, free everything. So, but that world doesn't exist anymore. And I wanted to document that yeah, uh, for those, for Kuwaitis even, who would not have seen that kind of life. Right, right. Wow. So what do you uh, hope that a reader takes away from your book? Well, the beauty of that culture and that world and the closeness and the warmth of Arab Arabs and their way of life and family, also that despite really hard uh, events in one's life like for mm -hmm. me it was both of my brother and my mother I, I when I look back at it as an adult I think oh my god how did I survive that you know losing your mother mm -hmm. um, age but there is hope and we have to sort of follow that optimism and that hope that life is there to be enjoyed and will be enjoyable at some point if we can get through the hard times so it's both kind of a, a an optimistic view of, of, you know, how to plunge through sorrow and emerge on the other side or into the light. And it's also a tribute to the way the Middle East was and my family was during those times in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. Wow. Well, that is beautiful. So I like to ask all of our guests the following question. What do you do, Catherine, to become your best version? Well, to tell you the truth, I feel giving back is now my best version. I do that several ways. I'm able to financially help people when they need. I have several organizations and families I personally help um, in the Middle East. I also really love teaching dance to people. Oh, yes. The dancing is is really something that I find brings joy to people, people who thought they could never dance and take it up and learn that step by step they are doing tango or they are doing salsa or cha-cha or rumba, samba, you know, all these dances that really bring joy to us all. And I love, love seeing people's faces light up when they find that they are dancing and they can do that. So, so I also have had um, a group of women I've taught belly dance to, and we performed at various venues, the World Bank. Uh, wow, beautiful. Oh, that's yes, so fun. We were all from different, we were a German, a, a woman from Kazakhstan, a woman from Hong Kong, myself. We were all different nationalities, Americans, and performing this uh, group belly dance that was broadcast all over the Middle Eastern branches uh, or uh, associates of the World Bank. So it is funny, uh, fun, I mean, to really give back in that sense, whether it's bringing joys to individual or individuals or helping out uh, in any way you can, um, reaching out. I think that's the best version of myself that I, I want to give back to all the blessings I've been given to in life. 
Well, that is a beautiful, beautiful note to end on. And I thank you, Catherine, for being here today and for putting your beautiful book in the world. It's called Dancing into the Light, an Arab-American Girlhood in the Middle East. And it's available on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. Learn more about Catherine at katherineabdulbaki.com. And thank you, Catherine, for taking time out on of your book tour to be with us today. Thank you so much, Maria. This was a real pleasure. Mm -hmm.